0: all right let's bow our heads Dear Heavenly father thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening thank you for truth that continues to set us free father thank you for revealing to us the fullness of the gospel and what it means to be sanctified by your grace which was motivated by your love always Thank you for bringing this congregation together so faithfully in a local assembly like this one where we can study the word comfortably. We know it's not necessary, Father, and so all the more we appreciate what you do for us. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt that was against us and makes an evening like this one even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. I'm going to have to go easy because right even when I was praying my throat, I want to cough. I'm on the z pack right now, um, which is like a basically a five-day cocktail of antibacterial type meds and uh, because I've been hacking for about Six weeks, so keep that in prayer as well, and I'll try my best not to cough. Um, Tonight's message uh, will require both your concentration and mine. It's funny because I was thinking about, okay, great, so we just come off this bear of a series, uh, 117 parts, you know, all that good hard work, and now he says, now we're going to talk about the difficult passages. (laughs) (laughs) And because some of them are non-contiguous, so to speak, we're going to kind of around a little bit. Uh, it's just more work for the for the pastor, so that's all. And uh, it just requires a little bit more concentration uh, by me uh, and you. So just keep hanging in there if you're particularly tired tonight. I uh, just wanted to give you a heads up. With that said, uh, let's reflect for a moment. How easy is it to take something out of context? That's our question. That's the base Baseline question this evening: How easy is it to take something out of context? I would say pretty easy. Is that fair? It's pretty easy. And uh, it even if, and you know, especially if it has benefits, uh, you know, and it's easy when we begin to argue like Satan. Ever notice how one of the most irritating people to debate with? is the person who consistently takes your words out of context? Is that not infuriating? Ever notice that politicians do that on purpose all the time during their debates? Why is that? Because, I hate to say it, but most politicians seem to care less about truth than simply winning. So they don't really care if they're taking things out of context. But this type of debater, and to this type of debater, the ends justifies the means. They don't care if they have to take something out of context that you said, as long as they win. However, taking something out of context for the sake of, quote, winning is wrong up here on the board. On that phrase, the ends justifies the means, Never in the Bible is this method considered godly. Never. Never in the Bible is this phrase, the ends justifies the means, considered godly. In fact, the Word of God tells us that it is better to suffer for what is right than to do something wrong. 1 Peter 2.20, 3.17, 4.19. Go to 1 Peter 2.20, Uh, This is obviously not the crux of tonight's message, but it's getting us into the idea of context and taking things out of context. The point on the board remains, never in the Bible is the, quote, the ends justifies the means, considered godly. In fact, the Word of God tells us that it is better to suffer for what is right than to do something wrong. 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is there if... When you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you uh, suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. How about 1 Peter 3.17? 1 Peter 3.17 For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Our encouragement is in knowing that winning isn't what's important given we've already become joint victors in Christ. We've got nothing to, I mean, there's nothing that we're trying to win here, other than maybe souls. But there's nothing that we're trying to win here. You know what I mean? We're not trying to win one for the flesh. We're not trying to Take things out of context, even in the Bible, so that the flesh has his little playground, un- undisrupted, little playground. So our encouragement is knowing that winning isn't what's important given we are already joint victors in Christ. Rather, it's doing what is right in the proper context. The proper context of our individual lives. Go to 1 Peter 4:19. 1 Peter 4:19. So I've taught you this, that we all have a context in our own lives. 1 Peter 4, 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So if your life context means you're going to suffer for doing what is right, then rest assured that God is pleased and that we entrust our soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And that's what counts. Again, the point on the board, never in the Bible is this method considered holy. In fact, the Word of God tells us that it is better to suffer for what is right than to do what is wrong. Suffering for doing what's right is not the crux of tonight's lesson, but it does amplify the point that God is not interested in having us take things out of context... God is not interested in us having us take things out of context, regardless of the perceived benefits. Regardless of the perceived benefits. Some people don't like the whole Gospel. We've learned this. Some people don't like the words of Jesus Christ. They seem awfully judgmental and harsh. We've learned this. People love the good words. People love the promises. And people are really good at taking things out of context so that their flesh can win something. As the Spirit's been teaching us, again, our lives have context. If we take ourselves out of that context so that we can attempt to alter our lives, we are disobeying God's will. If we try to eject ourselves out of our own lives' context, you know, you're not happy with the way God made you. You're not pretty enough or you're not smart enough. or You're not strong enough or whatever your problem is with the way that God made you. Uh, if you try to eject yourself out of your own life's context, you're disobeying God's will. That's what Satan did at his fall. He took himself out of context, arguing that he ought to be like the Most High. And he paid the price. He also tempted the woman in the garden the same way by debating surprising surprise surprise satan means attorney by debating with her about god's will he got her to abandon her life's context as the obedient wife of of adam and she fell too so the point of this little intro is pretty simple up here on the board relative to taking things out of context it's really easy and often advantageous to the flesh to take things out of context, to debate with God about His will for us. The pattern for doing so is clear. It's the same that Satan and the woman in the garden followed. Now here's what I want you to cling to. The result is a fall from holiness. Taking things out of context results in a fall from holiness. Again, it's really easy to do that thing the pattern is clear the result is a fall from holiness so i need you to focus on that last phrase and i'll summarize it up here on the board the result of taking biblical things out of context is a fall from holiness and guess what the gospel has context i'm going to show you this evening So the result of taking biblical things out of context is a fall from holiness. The gospel has context. The greatest, then, of all falls from holiness is from the gospel. If you're going to take something out of context, in other words, in the Bible, the worst thing you can pervert in doing so is the gospel. I cannot express how deeply... I feel the need to impress this upon all of you right now. The gospel has context. The gospel has context. So the obvious question is, well, then, what is the gospel context? It's simple. And it's been staring us in the face ever since Jesus spoke his famous words. Go to Matthew 28, 18. Some of you like, back there again? Yep, back there again. We could literally spend a very long time on these three verses. <clears throat> Remember they come at the end of a wonderful book. The first Gospel. Matthew 28, 18. Now read closely. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So let's dig in a little bit on this idea of the gospel context up here on the board at least as it pertains to Matthew 28:18, 18, the so-called Great Commission. Here's some context. The Great Commission was from Jesus with all authority. It was to all the nations. In other words, go out, evangelize, both Jews and Gentiles. When he says all the nations, guess what? The target for the Great Commission is Jew and Gentile, of which when this was written, when Jesus spoke it, even um, there was an admixture of Jews and Gentiles. And what all that I commanded you—and this came up on Tuesday as a highlight—all that I commanded you. Now, it's impossible—it's impossible for us nowadays to think about all that He commanded them without reading His own words. Well, what did He all? What did He command them? Oh, why don't we just read His words and see? all that I commanded you, when he was with them, a.k.a. the content of the four Gospels. What you have to realize is that if you understand the context of the Gospel, now I need you to focus on specifically the history and the audience. The history of the Gospel and the audience. The time that the Gospel was being given and the audience. Those kinds of things. That's the context that we're after. I need you to read your bibles that way. So once you have or once you or what you have to realize is that if you understand the context of the gospel then you'll quickly realize that it's impossible for verbal plenary scripture to hold true if there happen to be more than one version of it. More than one version of it. Before I press on, let me give you an analogy. Suppose you come to church and you and I have a long chat about what salvation means to the two of us. It's going to sound a certain way, I suppose. And then you go down the street after church to the pub and you have an equally long conversation about salvation with an unbeliever. Are you any different as a person? I mean, did you somehow fundamentally change? Of course not. However, you engaged with me very differently than the pub-crawling unbeliever, correct? It's the same thing with Jesus and his gospel. Context is key. However, neither he nor his precious gospel has ever changed same yesterday today and forever so says scripture jesus didn't change and because it's the the gospel of jesus christ guess what the gospels never changed it takes a lot of work to muck this up (laughs) because it's really very simple but you know man so regarding matthew 28 19 to 20 more on the gospel context If Jesus' words, you know, for example, those found in the four Gospels, were supposedly only for the Jews in the so-called Age of Israel, then why did he send the apostles, which were Jews, out to all the nations? We just read that. Why would he send those apostles out to the nations? It's not like these guys were teaching the same things that maybe... Later on, Paul wrote about in his affirmation or defense of the gospel. So if Jesus' words were only for the Jews in the so-called age of Israel, then why did he send the apostles, which were Jews, out to all the nations, including the Gentiles, with the only gospel they knew? It's not like Jesus said, okay, this gospel is for you guys, and then there's another one for these guys. Do you see that anywhere in Scripture? No, because it's not there. Why did he send the apostles, the Jews, out to all the nations, including the Gentiles, with the only gospel they knew, you know, the one he taught them, as described in the four gospels? If that's too logically stated in a bit of a mouthful for you, I apologize. Again, I'm just a man, remember. So if you're just, if you're, you know, on the fringe of a little bit of a confusion just remember it's my fault not God's if that's too much to chew on let me try to approach this from another angle the gospel context we're talking about the same gospel because we're talking about the same person how about that we're talking about the same gospel because we're talking about the same person Jesus is Jesus the Savior is the Savior there's only one person in view Therefore, there's only one gospel. This is what Paul was fighting against in 2 Corinthians 11.4. You know, outside of the gospels. This is the synchronicity of the gospel. Old Testament, New Testament. If you know your Bible and you're able to read it the way that he's been trying to teach you to read it from this pulpit, you're not going to have any problems. This is what Paul was fighting against. He wrote this years later, obviously. 2 Corinthians 11, 4. For if one comes and preaches another, Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. What we know is that there are lookalikes, there are counterfeits. And Paul knew, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, that there was only one gospel. Just like the other apostles did. It was sent out with the Great Commission. You see, this concept of robbing the gospel of its context is not a novel one. And as the Spirit taught us on Sunday and Tuesday, Satan has used a variety of agencies to move people away from the basic context, the simple context of the gospel up here on the board to help some more. Before his cross, believers trusted God that he'd send their Messiah Slash Savior. After the cross, believers trust God that He sent their Messiah slash Savior. There's only one Jesus. One person means one gospel. It's that simple, folks. Christ is not divided, nor is His gospel. Jesus Christ said, a house divided what? Does not stand. He doesn't want to be divided. He doesn't want your hearts to be divided. He doesn't want the gospel to be divided. But Satan knows those... And if you know that that verse in context, you know he was defending against people that were calling him a devil, basically. Funny, ironic, because that's what the devil does to him. Now, some of you might be saying, why is pastor splitting hairs here? It's because I need you to know, I need all of you, or I need to know that you all Understand the context of the gospel. Context is key, my friends. Let's visit the gospel of Mark again, and let's see what the gospel looks like in context. You don't know where we're going. In context of this message, you have no idea. (laughs) But... Let's see, let's see what the gospel looks like in context. And as we do so, I want you to pay, this is why I stopped you, because I want you to pay particularly close attention to the history and the audience. The history and the audience that Jesus refers to. It is, it is markedly different, or it was markedly different than the history and audience we face today with his same gospel, was it not? Of course. So remember, history and audience, especially up here on the board, before we even dig into Scripture, I want to get you thinking this way. We're going to look at Mark, a bunch of verses there. Historically, Jesus preached his gospel in his lifetime. That has context. It was a historical setting. Uh, he was surrounded by certain people, as did his Jewish apostles and disciples. Audience. Jesus preached the same gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, as did his Jewish apostles and disciples. But the presentation was different. Presentation. Jesus used different language, idioms, and etc. Okay, remember our our little analogy. You talk, you talk to me about salvation. You might even use a fancy word like propitiation or something, right? But you're not going to go to the 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 pub guy and use propitiation he's going to think you're a jackass and you kind of are but i mean aren't you the same person your heart's the same you still have the same love for the gospel right but it's just different audiences think of it that way we have to begin thinking about the gospel being grounded and rooted in a person the person of jesus christ so Jesus used different language, idioms, etc. to relate his gospel to different people, but the underlying content was always the same. So let's let Mark help us out. Okay, go to Mark 1.1. 1, 1. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> but you didn't know. We I'll go quickly because we saw some of this uh, this past week already. Mark 1.1, 1, 1. <clears throat> obviously this is a one of the four Gospels. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, just to anchor our thoughts on the continuity of the Bible, just remember the words we noted from Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, regarding this same Gospel up here on the board. Romans 1, nine. For a God who, uh, whom I, Paul, serve in my spirit in the preaching of the Gospel of His Son, same Gospel in view as in Mark 1.1, 1, 1 is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Again, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There was no discontinuity between Mark and Paul. Go to verse 14. Verse 14, the audience was different. Maybe the history was slightly different of the audience itself, but that's the context that the Spirit's bringing out. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, which was filled with Jews historically, preaching the what? Gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You can even hear his language as he spoke to that crowd. The Jews, remember, I've taught this years ago, the Jews were very much interested in the kingdom of god the kingdom come their messiah they wanted to even someone wanted a political leader type figure go to uh 13 verse 10 13 verse 10 but what we cannot let go of is that this gospel is the same gospel that even paul wrote about and paul was a so-called apostle to the gentiles and he wrote to you know romans Uh, years you know well actually in that case uh, it was almost the same time these two guys wrote but he wrote years after the words of jesus christ in the context of the gospel mark 13 10 the gospel must first be preached to what all the nations guess what the same gospel the one that was just brought to light and in uh in the under the the premise of the kingdom of god being at hand repent and believe the gospel right The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Is there any reason, just ask yourselves, is there any reason whatsoever that we ought to interpret this gospel as different than the one he preached to the Jews? No, not as far as Mark is concerned, not as far as Scripture is concerned. Why would we think any differently? Look at uh, Mark 14.9. Mark 14.9. Now, the presentation might be different might call for a different presentation. There might be certain sensitivities involved. Those of you in the Bible study, you remember how um, individuals were sent back to Jerusalem. And then what do we do with these Gentiles that are, well, just tell them to follow these particular rules so that the Jews in the area don't stumble all over the place. We want to build a little unity. Why? Because there's a certain context. The gospel comes in, but the same thing. I'm not going to go talk to the bar guy the same way I talk to you, right? And if you're both, this, if it's the three of us, I'm going to try to play some kind of an intermediary. It, that's just the dynamic of the gospel. I mean, people are different. History is different. Audiences are different. But you cannot ever fall prey to thinking there's more than one gospel or even varieties of it. Look at 14.9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Go to verse 16.15. 16.15. The end of the book now, right? We opened with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now we're closing. Look at Mark 16.15. There's literally no reason whatsoever Unless you have an agenda, unless you're trying to debate, unless you're trying to win something for the, some fleshly desire, there's absolutely no reason to think that the gospel is different. But yet, look what he says in verse 15. He said to, to them, his Jewish disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. <laughs> what do you think? Again, the point on the board. Historically, Jesus preached his gospel in his lifetime, as did his Jewish apostles' disciples. His audience, Jesus, preached the same gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, as did his Jewish apostles and disciples. However, the presentation was different, obviously. Jesus used different language, idioms, etc., to relate his gospel to different people. But the underlying content was always the same. What the Spirit's trying to show you here is something very simple that the gospel has a context that must be clung to, lest the person become confused. Up here in the board. I'm trying to help you on this this way. The gospel context must be tied to the person, to the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a doctrine, my friends. The gospel is about a person. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the gospel of Pastor Red's doctrines. It's not the gospel of whatever is, I don't know, in my notebook. It's literally a person. This whole thing is about a person. It's the good news about a Savior. So the gospel context must be tied to the person of Jesus Christ. If a person ties it to something artificial like, let's say, hyper-dispensationalism, they have lost their context because you lose sight of the person. The person becomes divided. Now it's Jesus then, Jesus... I mean, what? And then what about the scripture that says he's never changed? Same yesterday, today, and forever. If the gospel is pinned to a person and the person never changes, just like you didn't change in your conversation with me versus the person down at the pub, what are we doing? So the person that ties it to something artificial like hyper dispensationalism. They have lost their context. And to drive home the point from the start of tonight's class again, the result of taking biblical things out of context is a fall from holiness. Is a fall from holiness. The gospel has context. We don't have the right to take the gospel out of its own context. The danger that has been lurking throughout our studies now for about a year is so far-reaching that it involves salvation, even. That it involves salvation, even. For example, if a person gets the gospel wrong, maybe even because of the folly I'm teaching you about this evening, then they might not be saved. I can't decide that. You can't decide that. But that's true. If you've taken the gospel out of context, and you think there's several gospels or... Or you've watered it down, or something's happened to that gospel. Um, there's a, pro- there's a probability at least that you might not be saved if that's all you've clung to is some, I don't know, hacked version of the gospel. I mean, we just saw in, in the book of Corinthians that Paul said there is such a thing as another Jesus and another from another spirit and another gospel. So it's not that other Gospels don't exist. The Bible actually says that other Gospels do exist. And they're packaged the same way, and a lot of them have little crosses on them. And they say, Jesus loves you. Or they're on the back of a coin, Jesus loves you, you know, or a t-shirt or something. I don't know. I've learned to read the Bible. Let me just net some of this out for you as well. Uh, And this should help as well with the gospel context. We're not into that again. That was 117 lessons verse uh, worth of that kind of stuff. We're beyond all that. Uh, We're moving on. The gospel context. I've learned to read the Bible primarily with the following thought in mind, and it pertains to the gospel context, especially once a person understands the history of, and the audiences in which the Bible records its presentation. Remember, history, audience, presentation. Once you understand the context in those sort of, or from those viewpoints, you're much better off when you're reading the Bible, more on the gospel context. Here's what I've learned, one of the things that I've learned to keep at the front of my own mind when I'm reading scripture. The Bible speaks about two types of people. That's it. Unbelievers and believers. The Bible speaks about two types of people. Unbelievers and believers. The gospel is always presented in this context because it concerns the salvation of man. We're going to look at Matthew 7, 13-29 in a moment. The only time gospel passages become, quote, difficult is when people make further divisions from errant context. They get the context wrong and all of a sudden the scripture says something else. They get the context wrong and all of a sudden the fall away is unholy. You get the context of the gospel wrong. The result is unholiness. You end up with divisions that shouldn't be there. The gospel is very simple. Jesus Christ is very simple. Yes, presentation matters have changed. Yes, Israel had a certain law given to them, but we know that was just a schoolmaster to prove something. But other than that, there's not a whole lot of other things that are going to divide up so-called dispensations and carve up the person of Jesus Christ and then his gospel. So the Bible speaks about two types of people, unbelievers and believers. And the gospel is always presented in this context because it concerns the salvation of man. The only time the gospel passages become difficult is when people make further divisions from errant context. Go to Matthew 7, 13. Matthew seven thirteen. <clears throat> now let's first off think about his audience, which is obvious. He's in front of crowds all the time. He's saying things like this. He's constantly battling with the Pharisees. Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Okay, well, what's the context here? It's already on the board. Just read the first sentence. The context of verse 13 and 14 is the first sentence. The Bible speaks about two types of people. Those that make it through the narrow gate and those that don't. There's not a kind of, there's not a kind of sorter. There's not another fork in the road after. It's those who make it and those that don't. To read verses 13 and 14 and conclude that Jesus is talking about anything other than unbelievers in believers is ludicrous and oddly I think most will agree but let's continue but there's a good setting of our context at least and there's no reason as we're going to see that there's any division or any kind of new context being introduced here verse 15 beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will know them by their fruits All Jesus is saying is what's on the board. This is all he's saying, my friends. The Bible speaks about two types of people, unbelievers and believers. Jesus remaining in the obvious context makes a simple statement about unbelievers who claim to be believers. That's verse 21 forward. Look look at this. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, with all integrity, with all integrity to the context of Jesus' discourse here, given the obvious facts about his distinctions between the only two categories of people in the world, unbelievers and believers, does it make any sense at this point in this passage whatsoever to presume he's now distinguishing between believers only? No. I hope you don't see that. You'd be inventing something. The context is exceptionally clear, the history, the audience, exceptionally clear. There's just no way with integrity to the Word that we can do that. Yet, some do, as a result of having to make Scripture, let's say, fit into an errant gospel. When you pervert the fundamental doctrine in the Bible, when you pervert the person, of jesus christ when you divide him up you now have something unholy something that is not set apart for god but set apart for man somehow doctrines of demons i know it sounds harsh but that's what it is if it's not holy it's unholy you end up with something unholy and now you're stuck with something unholy, a concept nonetheless that's not God's mind, and now you have to fit Scripture into those buckets. Good luck with that. That's why so many people are confused, because they show up with this concept of a, the gospel or Jesus Christ, it's all hacked up, and then they're fit with the Bible, and they say, how do I fit that? Well, now you have to artificially begin carving up Scripture. That's what the Spirit has done with this congregation. Get the gospel right. Let's go back out and see all the places where we used to divide things up wrongly because we had the gospel wrong, because we weren't even reading the Bible correct with the right lens regarding the gospel. We had all these premonitions or these notions about there being three kinds of people some of you have in your minds. One unbeliever and a couple of different kinds of believers. Garbage doctrine. The Bible talks about two individuals, unbelievers and believers. Look at verse 24. Therefore, so we all agree there's no reason to start interjecting uh, uh, so-called believers-only type things here. Uh, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, reference to believers, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock, on Christ. So, in keeping with the rest of the passage, the context, Jesus first makes a distinction regarding believers being founded on the rock, here in Christ. Then, logically, he completes his discourse, with addressing the only other category of people, unbelievers. Look at verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, unbelievers, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds, notice the context, the crowds, the crowds, That's a lot of people. Jews, Gentiles, believers, unbelievers. Look at the audience. Look at the history. Who's he talking to? What's he trying to get across? The narrow road. Listen to my words. You're good. You're in Christ. Don't listen to my words. Great is your fall. Even if you think your house is all pretty, like the Pharisees did. Your house is built on sand. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, and he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. One great example that some have been deceived by, hence their confusion regarding the very words of Jesus, is out of context. Now, I'm going to give you this. Out of context, a person can read just verses 24 to 27, and claim that Jesus was somehow making some kind of a distinction between believers only. Out of context, you can do that. For the sake of comparison, let's read this passage out of context. Let's pretend we didn't read anything before it tonight. We just go, I go, go to Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, if that's all a person was presented with, They might buy the lie that Jesus was somehow talking about distinctions between believers only. But in context, in context, there's no reason to break from context. In context, one must accept, especially given the history and the audience, that Jesus was merely speaking about two different people the same two categories of people he consistently spoke of throughout his ministry as captured in the four Gospels, namely unbelievers and believers. That's a fact, my friends. The context of the passage is undeniable once a person puts in the effort to understand it, once they learn to read their Bibles for context, From verse 13 to the close of the chapter, it's obvious. Heck, even just the two verses immediately preceding this so-called out-of-context passage, we just read, are sufficient to reveal the appropriate context. That is to say that Jesus was making a distinction between unbelievers and believers. Look at verse 22. What is he saying here? He's like, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Who do you think he's talking about? He's talking about unbelievers. His whole, this whole context here is about believers and unbelievers. It started with the narrow gate. Why would we, why would we, the only reason we'd have to muck this up is if we're trying to fit a passage like this into a perverted gospel into a perverted system of thinking that has artificial boundaries to it if we just read it the way it reads history audience context i mean it's pretty straightforward isn't it it's actually work to do anything but see it for what it is but man's really good at that again the gospel whenever it was presented in its various forms always has context. Again, up here on the board, the Bible speaks about two types of people, unbelievers and believers. Okay, it's time to get back to where we started tonight, for this is the anchor of our studies. Go to Matthew 28, 18. Matthew 28, 18. So all the Spirit's saying is the gospel has context. And when you read scripture when you read the gospels proper even read for context don't invent it don't try to fit scripture just because you come to the table with some preconceived idea or you've got some remnant of some old theology or something that you're still struggling with matthew 28:18 and jesus came up and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Excuse me. teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Again, appear on the board as a point of review, from Jesus with all authority to all the nations, both Jews and Gentiles, what? All that I commanded you, you know, when he was with them, a.k.a. the content of the four Gospels. What you have to accept then is that the so-called Great Commission is actually a wonderfully impregnated passage of Scripture that demystifies many of the doctrines of demons that you might have floating around in your own souls. It's really good. It's, it looks so simple. It's like three verses, right? But this, this calling, the manner in which he calls them, the audience, the history who he's calling, how he's calling them, who he's sending them to, those things speak volumes. They speak volumes. And they help demystify many of these doctrines of demons that might be floating around. Some people have so lost the gospel context, often when getting hyper-dispensational, as we've learned, that they've essentially lost sight of the gospel. Think about it. I mean, I'm trying to think about that example I gave you. I mean, it's possible that um, if it was me that was talking to you, you know, about salvation, and then it was me that went to the pub, and I'm sitting next to some, you know, so-called dreg of society, I'm not picking on anybody, you know, someone just doesn't look very well or something like that, totally antagonistic. And then someone comes in from outside and says, isn't that Pastor Collins? What's he doing in this dive bar? Drinking with this guy. Well, that's out of context, isn't it? Oh, well, he must be living a double life then. Hmm. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm just going to another person, trying to get them saved. But you see, when you lose sight of the context, you lose sight of the person. You lose sight of the person, you lose sight of the gospel. If someone goes in, in their doctrines carve up Jesus against Scripture that says not to do that, then they lose sight of the person. And if you lose sight of the person, guess what you're left with? A bunch of cold doctrines. And for many of you, that was your gospel. Your gospel was a bunch of doctrines. Line on line, precept on precept. And you lost sight of Jesus Christ. Come on, man. There's almost nothing worse that we can do in this world. How the heck do we lose sight of Jesus Christ? I mean, I'm just as guilty. I'm emotional because it was me. Thanks be to God for his grace, right? Some people have lost, they've lost so much of the, the gospel context that they've lost sight of the gospel. Another perfect example of this, and it's actually in the Great Commission, was guess what? Water baptism. By hyper-dispensationalizing the Word of God. Some folks believe that water baptism is no longer a viable command in the Bible. Yet there it sits, plain as day. There it sits, plain as day, smack dab in the middle of the Great Commission. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Before we close, let me just say this. Oddly, sometimes lessons like this one stir a little more confusion than even existed in the first place. And if that's the case with you, then maybe you're not suffering too badly with any of this to start with. I want to say that. I have to speak to almost, I have to speak to a broad range of people here. Some of you know, some of you are more infected than others with certain things. Some of you are not infected at all, and you're kind of like, Well, a lesson like this is kind of like adding a little confusion. You know, I don't know what he's trying to get at here, but I didn't have that problem. And all I can say to you is good for you. But please excuse the fact that, you know, the rest of us have to get by certain things, and so the Spirit wants to present them openly from the pulpit. With that said, I just want to recap and then close on this lesson the difficult passages, the gospel context. And these are all points of review, just to sort of run through it again. Taking things out of context, it's really easy and often advantageous to the flesh to take things out of context, to debate with God about His will for us. The pattern for doing so is clear. It's the same that Satan and the woman in the garden followed. The result is a fall from holiness. One way to ensure we don't fall prey to this is keep the person of Jesus in view, up here on the board, the gospel context must be tied to the person of Jesus Christ. If a person ties it to something artificial, like hyper-dispensationalism, they have lost their context. The Great Commission is a good, as good a place as any to investigate the principles the Spirit is giving us this evening, up here on the board. The gospel in context relative to Matthew 28, 18-20, If Jesus' words, those found in the four Gospels, were supposedly only for the Jews in the so-called Age of Israel, then why did he send the apostles, the Jews, out to to all the nations, including the Gentiles, with the only Gospel they knew, the one he taught them, as described in the four Gospels? To put it more practically, we're talking about the same Gospel because we're talking about the same person. Jesus is Jesus, Savior, The Savior is the Savior. There's only one person in view, therefore there's only one gospel. This is what Paul was fighting against, 2 Corinthians eleven four. For if one comes and preaches another, Jesus, whom we have not preached, or, if, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Every shepherd in every age has always had to fight this same battle that I'm fighting for you right now. Before his cross, believers trusted God that he'd send their Messiah, Savior. After his cross, believers trust God that he sent their Messiah, Savior. There's only one Jesus, though. One person means one gospel. Christ is not divided, nor is his gospel. We also looked at a book that some folks deem irrelevant for members of Christ's church to even read. And that is one of the Gospels, the book of Mark. Historically, Jesus preached his gospel in his lifetime, as did his Jewish apostles, disciples, his audience. Jesus preached the same gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, as did his Jewish apostles and disciples. And the presentation, Jesus used different language, idioms, etc., to relate his gospel to different people, but the underlying content was always the same. When you read your Bibles, please do so with the following always in mind. The Bible speaks about two types of people, unbelievers and believers. The gospel is always presented in this context because it concerns the salvation of man. We looked at Matthew seven thirteen to 29. The only time gospel passages become difficult, quote-unquote, is when people make further divisions. For example, from errant context, trying to fit, trying to fit Scripture into something that's unholy or ungodly in its division. And then I'll close with the most poignant principle from the lesson, really the simplest statement. The result of taking biblical things out of context is a fall from holiness. The gospel has context. Amen? Ms. bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We do just ask for your blessings as we take these things that we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.